Amen. That was great. Thank you. Good morning. Well, it is good to see y'all. How many of you recognize that as an old hymn? Any any old churchgoers here? I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. That's great. Great. Well, it is good to be here. We've got a group of about 20 in Honduras that uh, Joseph's already led us in prayer for, but let's remember them. And what a blessing to carry, uh, carry the torch for John Hugh again this morning. Uh, I'm excited to be able to share with you the title of our message is Grace, Good Works, and, why, and, and, and Being His Trophy of Grace. Now, if I'd had more time to think through that title, I would have not broken rule number one is never used the same word twice in a sentence. But regardless, uh, that's what we're going to do. So the red letter question today, if you'll take your bulletin and open it, we can't decide what the red letter question is because the title is, if, uh, if Jesus saves us by grave, why do good works matter? And then the title, uh, if Jesus saves us by the grave, why do good works matter? And then mine is, if Jesus saves us by grace, why do good works matter? So let's just establish right now that by, in fact, through his death, going into the grave and his resurrection, we have been saved, all right? So theologically, we're correct there. And we kind of wrap all that up in the phrase grace, all right? So uh, God's power working in our life uh, for this moment. So we want to talk about that today. It's a great question. It's an important question. It needs about 10 weeks of response because this balance between grace and works is a very important thing. Uh, so let's, we're gonna, what we're going to do is do a high flyover today and just kind of hit some high points of it. We're going to be in Ephesians 2. So if you have your Bible or iPad or phone or whatever you use for your Bible, if you'll go ahead and open Ephesians 2, we're going to be looking at that together. And did we get our PowerPoint up? Great. We were having a little problems with our PowerPoint again. And uh, uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be going fast today. And I was worried about not having it because you're going to be, ta- if, you're, if you're a note taker, you're going to be taking a lot today. Uh, so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to start with a foundational verse, which is where we're going to end, uh, which is actually verse 10. So, so go to that next one here for me. Uh, I want you to read this out loud with me. I know we're a little more subdued group, but I, I like, you remember when Paul tells Timothy, he says, do not neglect the public reading of the word. I think there's something powerful about reading it out loud. So let's read this together. Everyone say Ephesians, that's actually 2, say Ephesians 2.10. Let's try it again. Ephesians 2.10. That's much better. Let's read it together on three. One, two, three. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right, that's where we're going to end today. We're going to work our way down to verse 10 here in chapter 2 and uh, see how we get there. So let's pray together. Father, we ask right now that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word that would help us live in the buoyancy of your grace while also living in the responsibility of living that grace out in a tangible way. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, listen, if you walk through the hallways here at JA or Prep or Madison Central or Pearl or any high school in this area, you're going to see a trophy case, aren't you? Somewhere you're going to see, some of y'all will say, well, some of them don't have, if you have a rival, you don't think they have one. But if it's your school, you've got a trophy case and every championship that school has won has got a trophy in it, right? We're going to put that up. Even some churches have that. If you grew up, I grew up in a church where we had a trophy case in the library for all of our softball tournaments before we had to cancel it because everybody was so ungodly on the softball field. But regardless, we did have the trophies. The Southeastern Conference has won, we're all proud of this, has won nine of of 15 BCS championship games, and the two SEC losers were to other SEC teams. Now, I guarantee you, when you go into those schools, you see trophy cases. 
right? Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, if you go, uh, you see banners, if you go to Vaught Hemingway, if you go to Davis Wade, if you go to Jack Spinks, and any of these, you're going to see banners hanging up. Maybe not trophies, but you're going to see banners saying, this is what we won, this is where we've been. Uh, I was at the old old Miss Bama game last year in Tuscaloosa, and uh, Bama paraded their women's national championship gymnastics team, accompanied by highlights during halftime. And they, they brought them all out and highlights, and boy, the music was playing. Everybody was going nuts, and they were holding up the the trophy, and they unfurled a banner in the gym. Why? Because that was a trophy. That was saying, hey, we did something significant. If you go to Cowboys Stadium uh, in Dallas, Texas, where I grew up, you'll see what we call the Ring of Honor. It has Roger Staubach and Bob Lilly and Emmett Smith and Tom Landry, and, and their names are up there saying these people have been significant. Trophies can also be in the form of rings. You remember recently where Robert Kraft, owner of the uh, New England Patriots, allowed Vladimir Putin, <laughs> the Russian president, to try on the ring, and he walked out of the room with it and still hasn't gotten it back. And it's become an international issue because Kraft is saying, listen, that represents a Super Bowl that we won. So what is the purpose of all these trophies, banners, and rings? They are displays of one's achievement. They're indicators that one's boastings are not hot air. Now, I hate to bring in such a carnal movie. Have anybody seen Napoleon Dynamite? Remember that, that great, great classic? Uh, right on up there with Gone with the Wind and, and Streetcar Named Desire, Napoleon Dynamite's right on up there. Remember Uncle Rico? And he'd get out there throwing his football, and I can hit the mountain from here. And he'd talk about all the things that he had done as he lived in the back of his little Volkswagen van. Uh, he didn't have a trophy. He only had words. So what do trophies do? Trophies say, hey, What I said I did, what I say I can do, I've got evidence that I can do it. I've got the trophy. I've got the ring. I've got the banner. I've got the thing to say. I'm not just blowing hot air. Well, what does that mean to us? Today, we're going to be looking how we, you and I, are trophies of God's grace. We are the proof that he can do what he says he can do. He's no Uncle Rico. What he says he can do, he can and he does. And we're the evidence of that. So let's begin by looking at an overview of our spiritual resurrection here in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's start there in Ephesians 2. And I just want to give a quick overview going through verse 9, and then we're going to camp out in verse 10, okay? So first thing we see in this passage is that you and I were in serious trouble. Look at what it says. As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, all of us, not the bad ones, not the ones born on the wrong side of the track, all of us lived among them, among this lostness. All of us lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So the first thing we see is that all of us, everyone in this room, were in serious trouble. You heard about the little boy, the parents had just given up. They didn't know what to do. He was just incorrigible. He was eight or nine years old, and they had tried everything. Teachers were upset. Coaches were upset. So finally they called their pastor and said, listen, we need help. If we don't get little Johnny some help, we don't know what's going to happen. So they sent him down to the pastor's office, and the pastor was trying to think, what angle am I going to take? What's the best way to go with this? And so finally, Johnny sat down. The pastor sat there for about 30 seconds to just let silence hang in the air. He said, Johnny, I want to ask you an important question. Yes, sir. He said, where's God? 
Well, Johnny just sat there and looked at him. You know how kids do. Didn't know what to say. The pastor said, Johnny, I need you to answer me. I want you to think about that. Where is God? Well, Johnny started fidgeting and rubbing, didn't know what to do, and hanging his head. Well, the pastor's now getting a little irritated. He said, Johnny, I need you to answer my question. Where is God? Well, now Johnny's just, he's picking his feet up off the floor. He's rocking back and forth. The pastor, who's just not known for his patience like we're not, and says, Johnny, where's God? And Johnny bolts up, runs out of his office, runs down the stairs, runs out on the sidewalks, runs seven blocks to his house, runs up his stairs, goes into his room, slams the door, and runs under the bed. His mom's astounded, goes in there, knocks on the door, Johnny, 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 what's wrong? He said, Mom, God's missing. They think I took him. <laughs> so... We are all in serious trouble. I don't care what your background was. I was raised in a church home. But from God's perspective, because of my sin, I was separated from him. And so here we see that Paul is trying to get us to understand, listen, you need to understand, you're never going to understand this thing of salvation if you don't know you needed to be saved. If you think you were good enough to be saved, if you think that you lived a good enough life and that you were philanthropic and you were nice and you didn't cuss at people and, and you were socially acceptable, therefore I was good enough. If you don't start with this premise, I needed God, regardless my wife, she grew up in, a, in a, a, a strong Christian home, and the most rebellious thing she did that I can think of that she's ever admitted to me was she quit violin without telling her mom. I mean, she just, just busting hell wide open with this rebellion in her life. You know, I'm out doing drugs and running all this kind of stuff. But you know what? That one little thing, you say, well, that's not that big of a deal. That's because it's not our sins Actions that have cost us, it's our sin, it's our, it's our nature of independence from God that has cost us. And Paul said, listen, we were in serious trouble. And regardless of whether that was manifested in great outward sin or whether it was just that I was good but I was still independent from God, every one of us in this room needed Jesus to die for us. That's what the Bible teaches so clearly. And Paul's trying to paint a picture for us here to understand how important that is. Now, the second thing we see, look at verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, I love that phrase. Man, if you've if you got a, your Bible open or if you can highlight, you've got a pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, anything that will write, I want you to underline, who is rich in mercy. I love that phrase. God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace, everybody say grace. Say grace. By grace you have been saved. Now two things I want you to see here. Number two, God initiated toward us. Not only was I in a mess, but who made the first step? When I was dead in my transgressions and sin, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. I've not even done anything at this point. I am dead, and he makes me alive. So God initiates toward me. He's the initiator. Now, we believe there has to be a response, but here's what's so cool, is that when God looks at us, if you have teenage children, you know how hard it is when they're acting the fool to be gracious. You know what I'm talking about, parents? And when they start acting the fool, and you want to go, really? My wife's classic line is, I went through 30 hours of labor for this. Do you under, you know, this, we're not putting up with this. And so here we are with our children sometimes, and they'll start acting the fool, and we're thinking, well, why are they acting like this? How hard is it at that point to chill down 
and move toward them and say, hey, listen, honey, I, I want what's best for you, even though you're acting like an idiot. Storm into their room. Now, I know your kids don't do this, but my kids have been known to storm out of a room. What's the hardest thing to do at that moment? To follow after them, sit down and say, honey, let's talk about this. Let's discuss. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> well, let's. And here's God in the face of our rebellion moving toward us. Is that not the coolest thing? God initiated toward us. But not only that, I want you to look at the third thing. Is that he transforms us. Look at this. This is great. Based on his love. He doesn't transform us. Oh, man, look at that guy. Look at that gal. Oh, she would be a great asset in the kingdom. Oh, man, if I could get her saved, that would be awesome. I could just do all kinds of things. God does not save us based on us. He saves us based on his love. That's the most amazing thing. Because of his great love for us. Not because of our great potential. uh, Because we could be used greatly by him. Here is his motivation to come after you. Because he loves you. That's it. Well, I don't understand that. I, I get it. That's why Paul says later in the next chapter, he says, I pray that you by the Holy Spirit will know this great love, the breadth and the depth and the, the height and the length of the love of Christ. You can't get it mentally. It has to be a spiritual revelation. If you don't understand God's love for you today, it will take the ministry of the Holy Spirit to explain it to you. You can't get it by thinking about it. You have to say, God, help me understand it. And so God initiated toward us, and he did it because he loves us. Now look at the last thing. Look at verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, everybody say coming ages. Now what does that mean? That means in the future, right? That means what's coming down the way. That's a, that's a biblical way of saying tomorrow and next year and next decade and next century. So that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Think about this phrase. In the coming ages, he might show his incomparable riches of grace. How? Expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see. He shows off his work through us throughout eternity. This is where I get the title, Trophy of Grace. You see, I can talk about what I did in high school, but when my kids see the the newspaper clippings, it's a totally different story. God can say I can transform a life, but when when people look over and see your life transformed, you're his trophy. You're his ring. You're his banner unfurled. That's why Paul said in Corinthians, remember what he said? He says, we don't have letters of recommendation written on stone. We have letters of recommendation written on your heart. In other words, because of the transformation in your life, People say, hey, man, your message must be real. And so that's the picture he has here. It's a really cool thing. God says, listen, you're my trophy case. You're the proof. What I've done in your life, what I've done in your marriage, what I've done in your family, what I've done in your finances, what I've done with your sense of purpose, what I've done to deliver you, what I've done to elevate you, all of those things are not just for you, but so that I can demonstrate to the coming ages, to the next generation, I can do what I said I can do. I can change your life. I can give you purpose. I can give you meaning. That's who you and I are. We are his trophies of grace. That's a pretty cool thing. He shows us off. So, Dan, you don't know me. I don't, but I'm not the one saving you. He's the one that knows you. And he's the one that said, I'm making you my trophy of grace. 
And so it's really cool when we see this. Now, that's the context for where we want to go to. So before we talk about our questions, since we're saved by grace, why do works matter? Let me tell you what works does not do. Number one, works does not save me. I can't do enough works to save me. My salvation comes because Jesus died on a cross, was buried, rose again, and through his death, he, he paid for sin, and through his resurrection, he conquered sin's payment, which is death. And those of us who accept him as our personal savior, for those of us who say, hey, I want to give my life to him, I want to submit to his lordship, then we are saved by that grace. We, we give him our lives, and in exchange, he gives us his life. And we call that salvation, or being born again. Okay, And so we're not saved by works. You can do all the great works in the world, but our salvation comes by accepting the life of Christ. Number two, God, the second thing it's not, is it does not, make me lo- does not make God love me more. Doing good works doesn't make God, oh, I love you more. Now, he may be pleased with me more. He may be pleased with my actions. He doesn't make, me, doesn't make it, him love me more. I've got six children, and they are at various stages of life. And those six children have been through various stages where there have been times that we've been pleased or not pleased with their behavior, but not once have we stopped loving them, and not once has our love waned. In fact, it was our love that caused the bad times to hurt. If we didn't love them, the bad times wouldn't hurt. You almost wish you didn't love them, but you do. And you know what? The same is true with God. Our behavior, while it may break his heart, does not cause him to love us less. And when we do good works, while it may please him, does not make him love us more. He loves us because he is love. And the third thing it does is it does not make you a superior Christian to be able to look down at other people. I've been in churches sometimes where people who've lived good lives for a long period of time like to look down at others. Good works does not give you a badge to be condescending. Okay, so we have to be careful about that as well. In fact, one of, the nat- one of the outcomes of true good works is graciousness and humility. So if good works don't save us, then why do they matter? Well, let's look at the last three verses to answer that question. For it is by grace, verse 8 says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and many would argue, and many theologians or, or linguists and studying the Greek here would say that uh, the word faith is what it is you don't get of yourselves. Not salvation, but faith. Others would say the salvation. But regardless, wherever our faith begins, it has to begin in Him, not us. So even our faith to believe Him initiates in Him. He's moving toward us, His love toward us. So it is not anything that we do, but what He's done, and we receive it. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. Here's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Let's take these last 15 minutes or so to talk about, then why do works matter? There are four reasons that works matter according to these verses right here. Number one, works matter because they are a tangible demonstration of His grace. If God has worked in my life, if I believe in him, then in fact, I'm going to do good works. That's the demonstration of his grace in my life. It demonstrates that in fact, he he did what he said he could do. And so the first thing good works does is, is is a demonstration. It's a testimony. It says God has worked in my life. The second thing that it does that I think is important and goes along with this real closely, which is why I'm kind of putting them together, is that good works are in fact 
a barometer of my spiritual walk. Don't mistake it. My works don't make God love me more, but it certainly lets him know if I'm maturing. My children may not behave right, and I may love them regardless of their behavior, but I'm still aware that they're struggling to grow up. And I do that by looking at how they live life, how they interact with others, how they interact with their siblings, how they manage their money, how they handle school, how they handle conflict. And when I'm looking at them, notice this, my love does not change, but I can discern where they are. Is that not correct? And so a lot of times we get confused with this pleasing God versus God loving us. And so the second thing we see is that it is a great barometer of our walk with God. What does James say? Some say, I, 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 I have faith without works. And he says, no, 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 no. Show me your faith, what? By your works. If you have faith, there's going to be a revelation of that somewhere. When I was in college, I'd been dating a girl for about two years. And uh, we'd been talking about getting married. In fact, we'd you know, been using the big E word, engagement. And I'd looked at rings and... I, you know, I was, I was all, all to the point of staying at her family's house when I went there, and she stayed at my house when she came to, to Dallas. She lived in Houston, and, and uh, we, we'd gone to, to Baylor and, and uh, had just both gotten to Baylor. I'd spent two years at North Texas State and then went to Baylor. She had been there the whole time. And not long after I got there, she and I sat down, and uh, she gave me a list of 10 things that I needed to change in order for this relationship to keep going. So I sat there for about an hour, which felt like a year, walking through these 10 things that I needed to change. And some of them were pretty simple. I, you need to tell me you love me more. I, need, you know, I feel like you need to initiate toward me more. And I, I don't remember what the 10 things were. I burned the list. But she, in giving me the list, along with several rituals and two squirrels, but regardless, I, not that I was bitter, but as I went through the list with her, and I graciously listened, and I you know, asked questions and tried to understand the list, and she said, you know, I, I just feel like that if we're going to take the next step, then, then these things need to happen. And if, if you can't do these things, then I'm just not sure that our relationship needs to go any further. So I, I went through, clarified each of the 10 things. And when I got through, I said, Amy, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk me through this. And I think we need to break up. And I don't want to be too cynical here, but, you know, she told me that if I didn't want to do it, then I was free to leave until I exercised that option, at which point I became an idiot. Who do you think you are, and why are you doing this? And then her sister got involved, and then her sorority sister. Oh, it was a mess, because you never break up with a girl. You break up with a whole culture. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, for the next few weeks, I had to navigate through this. Why haven't, you know, I can't believe that she sat down and gave you all this, and then you just broke up with her. What kind of man does that? I said a man who was given an option. <laughs> you gave me the option. Don't be mad that I exercised it, all right? As I tell my kids, if no is not an option, you didn't really ask me a question, all right? Hey, can I go over to Johnny's house? No. Well, I can't believe Wait a minute. You didn't really ask me, did you? You thought I was going to say yes. And so when I got through, we, we got through all that. She's a godly girl and, and ended up, that the girl I began to date, who is now my wife, Hazel, in the back, they had class together. And so Amy and Hazel and I were in proximity fairly often. And to Amy's credit, one day she came up to me one day and she said, I want to tell you something. She goes, everything that I was asking for you, I see you doing that with her. I said, don't be taking credit for it. She goes, no, 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 I'm not taking credit for it. She goes, uh, because here's what happened. Here's, 
number one, I appreciated her willingness to talk to me. And I, I tell couples, you need to have those conversations. If you can't have those, you, your relationship's not going to go very far. So if you're skating around those, and thank God we had the conversation and we're able to, to avert an unnecessary future of frustration. But here's what I discovered in that list to me. That list didn't tell me as much about my behavior as it told me about my heart. Because here's what I intuitively knew. Everything she was telling me on that list should have been natural. I mean, I'm a hopeless romantic. I mean, I'm not one of these, you know, Clint Eastwood types that sits around and grunts. And gr I mean, I'm, I'm physical and I'm expressive and I flirt and I, I, I like embarrassing our kids, you know, with things I say to my wife. It's one of the joys of being a parent, you know, just seeing them just apoplectic, you know. I can't believe you said that. Oh, yeah. We're slapping high fives, you know, as they're crawling under the couch. And, and so I, there's, well, here's what I discovered. That list which was so hard for me to do, was more a revelation of my heart than anything else. You see, if I'm having a hard time living out good works, at some point I need to stop and go, has my heart really changed? It's a great barometer. If, now, it's one thing to, to want to do what's right and to struggle to do that. That's called maturity. Paul talks about that in Romans 6 through 8, all right? Those things I want to do, I don't do the things I wish. We see that struggle. Here's what I'm talking about. If it's not even a want to in you, if you don't even want to do it, then you have to back up and go, has my heart really, have I really found grace? Because when grace invades my life, guess what? I want to say I love you. I want to initiate towards you. I want to leave little love notes on your counter. I, those things are natural to me. I may not know how to do them. I may feel insecure, but I want to want to. And so here's what good works do. They help us understand where am I in this spiritual journey? Do I care? Do I want to follow God? The third thing it does, it's a culmination of our created purpose. Notice what he says. He says, uh, uh, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You're created to do that. Listen, you and I were created from Genesis 1, we were to be partners with God. Think about this. God created the earth so that we could rule it. He created the earth and then he put man in the earth and said, now rule it. Now, at that time, we didn't have sin, we weren't selfish, we weren't fallen, so we would have ruled the earth with his grace and for his purposes. In our fallenness, we like to rule the earth for ourselves, okay? But beyond all that, God gave us the earth to rule. He created a partnership between him and us. Jesus came back and repurchased that sin, we lost it through sin, and Jesus came back and brought us back into this partnership so that a part of our experience in the earth is that we were created to do good works. You're going to be the most fulfilled when you're doing good works. You're going to be the most fulfilled when you're not because you're trying to get God to love you, or, but because it's what is in your heart to do because of the grace that he has put in you. That's the reason some of us struggle. That's the reason some of us have to work hard because we want to, you know how it is, you'll hear John Hugh preach on Honduras and, and you'll look at each other and say, man, we ought to do that. And three weeks later, you've talked yourselves out of it and then you feel bad. I, I don't know how many times I've said, oh, you know what, we need to go down to the food bank and do something. I'll get all excited about it during church. And then by the time Saturday comes around, I'm struggling, right? And so I have this, but guess what happens when I go do it? 
there's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of joy that comes. Man, that was great. I just got back from El Salvador, and uh, my daughter's been down there for four weeks. My family went down a few weeks ago. You know, that's not an easy trip. It was a tough trip. It was an emotionally tough trip. And there were a thousand reasons not to go. But in going, what happens? Something gets satisfied in us. When you see someone that needs grace and you extend that grace rather than walking by, something is satisfied in you because you were created for that. And then the fourth thing is that it's a loud voice of our gratitude to him. You know, one of the greatest ways we demonstrate gratitude to God is doing good works. It's kind of a cool idea. And think about that. Is that not true with our own children? Isn't it true when, when our children do stuff? Uh, came home the other day and the house was clean and the yard was mowed and everything was picked up. And I, I thought the rapture had happened and somehow people were trying to earn their way. I said, well, what's going on here? Well, what happened? My children uh, took it upon themselves to, to do this work. And guess what happened? It, it, it did something in me. It said to me, they get it. They're a part of a community. It's our house together. It's our community together. And everyone's owning the success of this. And the greatest gratitude my children showed toward me is when they do those things that demonstrate that they get it. You know, one of the ways we really show gratitude for our salvation is through our good works. It's one of the powerful things in it. All right? So let's look real quickly uh, at four categories of good works, and then we'll be done. The first category of good works is personal holiness. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you take those manifestations of the Holy Spirit, that, that's, that's a, that is one of our ways of, of, of good works. I want to cultivate these things in my life. Uh, I want to cultivate love. I want to cultivate joy. I want that to be a, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit's life in me. So personal holiness is one of the, uh, uh, one of the good works that we do. The second kind of good works that we do is spiritual disciplines. Now, I just put the whole Sermon on the Mount up there, Matthew 5 through 7. If you want to go do this study on your own, that's where he talks about prayer and fasting and forgiveness and uh, all the disciplines that we have, financial stewardship, all the things that, that we as Christians should cultivate in our lives. Those are the kinds of good works that we cultivate, and we just simply call them spiritual disciplines, things that all of us need to have in our lives. Learning to read, Joseph was sharing earlier about some of our young people who come and say, teach me to read the Bible, teach me to pray. That's the sign of someone that grace is at work in them. Do you agree? I mean, when a young person comes up and says, teach me how to pray, you say, are you kidding me? I've had elders that hadn't asked me to teach them how to pray. And here's a young person saying, what's that a manifestation of? That's good works, which is the result of what? Grace. That's not some kid who's trying to work their way up the spiritual ladder. That's a young person who says, something's at work in my heart, and I want to cultivate this, and that's a, a form of good work. The third kind of good work that we have is social engagement, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. You guys are so good at this, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but isn't it interesting, in Matthew 25, he's talking about the end of time, and there's all kinds of parables that he's telling, but in this one, starting in verse 31, he says that the king will bring together all the nations, and he's going to separate them on six specific issues, and what are they? You remember what they were? I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you came to see me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Hunger, thirst, clothing, aloneness, sickness, and prison. He said, because you did these, enter into 
your kingdom. He looked at the other one and said, because I was hungry and you didn't give me, I was thirsty, you didn't give me. Very practical social engagement. And because you didn't do that, depart from me. And so one of our forms of good works is social engagement. How are we interacting with people who are in tangible, visceral, physical, felt need? Okay? According to those categories. And then our last form of good works, you can't see it because it's lost in the color there, is, uh, in, is kingdom advancement. Matthew 28, he says, All authority is given me on heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all those things, whatever I've commanded you until the end of the age. So the fourth kind of good works that we do is we take the kingdom of God and we advance it, just like we're doing in Honduras right now, what, what, what we're doing all over the world, what we're doing when we go in and we share with people how they can personally know Jesus Christ. That is the demonstration that we're looking for. So four kinds of categories of good works. You say, Dan, that's a whole bunch of them. Yeah, you spend your life cultivating this. This isn't something you're going to do by next Sunday. Everybody goes, oh man, y'all got to do this before next week. No, this is the lifelong journey. This is from now until you die. And some of us are, our runway's getting shorter, right? Some of us have a longer runway. But you've got the rest of your life to say, Lord, help me cultivate these in varying degrees in my life. As I come on, I'm not trying to get you to have this done by December. I want this to be a part of your life until the day you die. And you know what? God's gracious about that. He's not trying to fix everything today. So what is he convicting you about today? When you look at that list, what is it that he's talking to you about? Where is it that he's pulling you? He's looking at it. See, you know what? I hadn't been doing real good on that personal holiness thing. I've been feeding the poor, and I've been doing, but I hadn't doing the. Or maybe you'd look up there and say, you know what? Those spiritual disciplines. I, you know, I, I seek to be holy, but the fact is, I could do better in some of my disciplines and fasting and praying. You may look at this and say, you know, I, I just don't do real good in, in, in feeding the poor or taking care of taking opportunity to engage people who are broken. Or, you know what, I love all that, but I'm just intimidated about advancing the kingdom or sharing my faith or letting someone know about Jesus. And that might be a place you could start and say, Lord, help me with that. Help me to know how to cultivate that discipline better in my life because I am so grateful for what you've done in my life. I'm so excited that I'm your trophy of grace, and this is how he cultivates it, and this is how he demonstrates it. Last verse I want to give you, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Did we get that up there? Were you able to put that in there, Byron? I don't think so. All right. Um, let me read it to you. It's, one of my, it's another favorite verse of mine. We're, we're going to get ready to go into our, our prayer time here. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, well, I'm just going to quote it because I'm in James on my Bible here. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the reward for those things done, whether good or evil, in our bodies. You see, there's going to come a day when we're going to stand before God and we're going to answer for what we did. Now, here's what I like about this verse. What we physically did with our bodies. What did I do with my hands? What did I do with my feet? What did I do with my voice? What did I do? How did I use this to demonstrate God's grace? Now, sometimes you can read that if you were raised like I was, which as a Southern Baptist, I was just terrified all the time. And it wasn't anyone's fault. It was, you know, it was just my journey. But, you know, man, I always felt like God was just always a little mad at me. And I was always trying to get him unmad at me. That was kind of how I was raised. And, uh, and so when I started reading this first, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive those things done in our bodies, whether good or evil, I started realizing that means the good things I've done, he's seen too. 
I work with companies to help develop their uh, evaluation programs sometimes and help them with their people. And I remember reading Jack Welch years ago who said this, you should never fire someone that they don't know 30 days to 60 days out that you're about to fire them because you have met with them so often, have tried to help them so much, and you've partnered with them and you've worked with them that they're almost glad to go because they know they ain't got the goods. Well, here's what I've learned as I've helped these companies develop evaluation programs. People who are getting the job done can't wait to be evaluated. I used to love seeing evaluations come because that meant my supervisor was about to see all the stuff I had done. You know what's so cool about this? You know what? There's some things that I'm so grateful God can forgive me of and has wiped away. But he's also going to reward me for the good things I've done too. And that's exciting. I can't wait to see my resume in some of those situations because I have sought to follow him. I have sought to demonstrate his grace, and so have many of you. And you know what? There's going to be a day that you're going to stand before him, and he's going to go, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I want you just to keep shoring up those rewards in heaven. Keep putting those trophies away so that as you are his trophy, you can also celebrate when you stand before him for the good works that you've done as well. All right, let's stand together as we pray. Let me just ask you, what's God doing in your life right now? How's he, how's he ministering to you through all of this? As we get ready to just sing and, and worship a little bit, we, we have altars up here. We, we sometimes we'll have our deacons or some other person standing here to pray with you. But wouldn't it be exciting if you could start today to say, how do I build that trophy case in heaven? as God is building his trophy case through me. Would you just bow your heads with me for a second? Would you just ask the Holy Spirit? So Holy Spirit, would you come? And John Hughes is going to preach on the Holy Spirit next week. I'm excited about that. We were met this last week to see who was going to cover that and who was going to cover this. So he's going to get to do the Holy Spirit, which is a great study. Don't miss next week. But one of the things the Holy Spirit does is that he cultivates our relationship with Jesus with us. He introduces, he's, he keeps Jesus in front of us. So right now, would you just take a minute and just ask the Holy Spirit, would you come and help me see what I can begin to, to build in my life? I, I'm not asking you to become a, a complete person with this whole list. But today, something convicted you, something touched you. I said something somewhere that you thought, ooh, man, I'd like to cultivate that. Take just a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to help you cultivate that in your life. To build that out, to, to expand that further, that you could build a life of good works. Not to get God to love you, not to become superior, but because it's what you were made to do. It's what Jesus redeemed you to do. Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to delve into your word and to see your love for us, to see your grace for us. And Father, I just ask right now that across this room in every heart and every mind that you would continue to cultivate in us a hunger. God, we don't want someone to put a list in us, in front of us, that we have no desire to fulfill. Lord, we want, we want to do these things. And Father, I pray right now in this room for those who don't want to, it's just so far away from them, they don't know where to go. Lord, I pray that you'd begin to draw them into personal grace and salvation in a very personal and fresh way. And I thank you for that, Lord. You just deal with God as he deals with you.